Hello, this is Aarti and Sriram on The Good Time Show. This time we had a really intense but incredibly nerdy fun episode covering a very special guest. Sriram, tell us about who we talked to and what it was about. So you're going to listen to a conversation we had with Andreas Kling. Now, that name may not ring a bell, but it should. Andreas is the founder of and leader and creator of an operating system called Serenity. You may not have heard of it unless you're part of a very special crew. But Andreas and what he's doing is incredibly special. Number one, building an operating system is a crazy attempt to build something monumental, and he's doing it almost single-handedly. And number two, Andreas has one of the most insane personal stories that I've ever come across. And when we heard about it, we knew we had to get him on the show and this didn't disappoint. So I hope you have as much fun listening to it as we had making it. Andrea is a very unique person and his story needs to be out there more. Enjoy. Live from San Francisco, it's The Good Time Show. And now your hosts, Artie and Sriram. It's just such an honor and privilege to welcome Andreas Kling to the show. Andreas, welcome. Uh, well, hello, friends. That was a lovely intro. Thank you so much. <laughs> I stole your tagline. I, 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 was, you know, I think I, as we were chatting a little bit before, we've hosted a lot of interesting, famous people on the show, but your story just touched me, moved me, and I think going to move so many others. It's, just, it's such a deep level, and it's just an honor, such a privilege to have you on here. And you know, I want to thank you in advance for just being so open about everything you've done. I think it's just really remarkable. Uh, we're going to get deep into it. We're going to get super nerdy, super technical. We're going to get really deep into everything. But maybe for the folks who are watching this, who may not be, you know, technical or nerdy or we don't know what an operating system is, in your simplest possible words, what is Serenity? What is it that you're working on? Okay, so Serenity OS is a complete operating system for desktop computers. So it's kind of a replacement for Windows or Linux or Mac OS, depending on what you would be using today. And the, the whole thing is built just for fun, really. It just started as a kind of personal therapy project for me. And there aren't any financial goals and there aren't any goals to acquire users or anything like that. It's just something I started building for myself. But it is a complete software stack. So it has everything from text editor to web browser to photo editor and everything okay. in between. Yeah. And games also, yes. Some really not great games because there i didn't focus on that too much but yes we do have some card games like solitaire you know i think first of all thank you i think you alluded to this being a therapy project and now we'll get into that which you've been quite open about but honestly for people who may be listening to this who are not technical the scale of what you've built is just monumental like not only is it an operating system like windows or os x that you use your laptop on which is usually built by thousands of engineers you also have a web browser in there. Applications on top of Applications it. Applications on top of it. You know, there's a text report, Doom and a bunch of other games. And it's just like, just the, the scope of work is just remarkable. And, you know, and I one thing I want to get into later is it's so daunting to even think about building one of these things, right? It's like, <laughs> any doubt would be like, oh my gosh, like you don't even fathom the amount of work required, but it's just really inspiring. But maybe I want to, we'll get there later. I want to start at the beginning. You know, you grew up in Sweden. Right. What is kind of your earliest memories of writing code, 
tinkering with computers? So it really started when my father used to work for the government when I was a child here in Sweden. He was a traveling inspector of scales and gasoline pumps. So the Swedish government would task him to drive around the country and make sure that people were not getting scammed when buying gasoline, avocados, I guess. Mm-hmm. So they gave him a laptop to bring with him on these trips so that he could sort of keep track of all of the measurements and stuff he was taking. And when he would come home on the weekend, he would just pass out because he'd been traveling all week and he would leave this laptop out on the kitchen table. And that's when I first got to use computers. So that would be like, I guess, earliest 88, 89, sometime like that. When I was three, four years old. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. wow, that's early. very young. So I had early access for, for people in my age group, I guess. And he also had a coworker who would write these little programs for him in basic that would, you know, allow him to input all the stuff and print out some nice reports, things like that. And that was my first exposure to programming was like my father just explained to me that oh, here's this computer and my friend wrote me a program. And to me, that was like totally natural. This is just something you do. You get a computer and then your friends make you programs. And and I used to think my father's coworker was just the coolest guy ever because he knew how to do that. (laughs) He might have been. He might have been. And and what language was it? So that was basic back in the day is this Microsoft GW basic. Yep. Yep. Very familiar. Yeah. Yep. I mean, that was one of our earliest programming languages, too. And, you know, it, it, it was a really fun way to get into computers super early on. Yeah, yeah. And, and in some ways, you could always say that that experience has not really been replicated since because, like, there's so many abstraction layers nowadays yes. that you yeah. don't get that visceral, like, type one thing, get that response. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, my data computers was using actually Visual Basic, VB6, which I think might be one of the greatest sort of versions of any coding programming environment. And there is definitely a loop of feedback and you, you play with it, you get back instant feedback, lack of complexity. Which Visiwig. Visiwig, right? I mean, with, with code, you know, uh, low code, maybe as we might say these days, which is really powerful. And did you ever, do you always identify with being an engineer, being a coder? Did you always want to, did you grow up being like, hey, someday I want to be a programmer and do this? Cool? I knew I wanted to work with computers somehow, but as early as my exposure was, my parents were still kind of skeptical about it. I remember my father telling me when I was, I don't know, 12 years old or something like that, that I know you like computers, but I'm not sure there are so many jobs in computers, which, you know, turned out to be not the most accurate uh, prediction. But but I knew I wanted to do that from very early on. Like I, it was the thing I would dump most of my waking hours into, mm-hmm. like, like many of us. I think, yeah. I think you're all about similar age ranges. It might be hard for people on after 2000 to realize, but back in that day, you know, being a coder was not a given. I mean, getting a job if you want to be a programmer was not a given. I remember when we graduated, it was right a few years after the Y2K era, right? And so yeah. the dot-com bust had happened. Yep. And I always remember, you know, like listening to the guy who had kind of gotten the highest score in the year before I graduated. And I remember saying something like, of course, I'm not, I'm not going to do computers. There are no jobs there anymore. And yet I was, you know, doing Yeah, yeah, fun. yeah. No, I think with the year we joined college, like left high school and joined college, it was right after the whole, mm-hmm. you know, year 2000 stuff and dot-com buzz. And so that batch that had graduated the year we had joined, they'd basically not gotten right. any jobs. It was like a total struggle. And I remember just walking into college campus being like, 
like it all hope was lost and was like why would you ever take this as a career as like a profession like why would you study computer science and then magically four or five years later it was a boom time again so we i think in many ways we lucked out in like picking both a hobby that we enjoyed doing and we really like wanted to spend a lot of time but kind of making it into a career path that wasn't like you know oh yeah you know it's like nothing was ever like you're never going to get like paid for this kind of thing it was something that was like monetizable it's yeah we were like yeah. we were just thankfully somebody paid for us yeah so there's actually an interesting bit of your story which you talk about in one of your videos which is you are a self-taught coder and you know and you obviously wind up you know eventually getting a job at apple you know without i believe a formal kind of computer science you know degree. degree could you talk about that whole journey of learning to code and then making it into really silicon valley kind of where we are because yeah. a lot of people listening to this they may be like hey that just seems impossible and even that part of your story i think is really inspiring yeah i i actually dropped out of high school after two attempts at it because i just I was a little bit too rebellious as a teenager, I think. I didn't want to follow the rules and because of that I just ended up outside of school eventually and and no my, pushback from the parents. With pushback from the parents very yeah. much, okay. but they said basically you can't just you can't just loaf around here all day. You have to get a job now. So that's sort of what I started doing, just getting jobs and this was around the same time that you just described sort of when recovery started after the dot com bust mm-hmm. and maybe around 2003 2004 things started picking up again and we started having web design companies in small towns in Sweden mm-hmm. because like oh everybody had to get a website and all the small businesses so i joined one of those places under very sketchy conditions because i was just a kid and they knew they couldn't pay me much and i wouldn't ask for much but it did as still it was still a job right and i could still make some money and satisfy my mom's condition that i have a job so yeah i started doing websites for local businesses and that's how i started learning php and then came a time when somebody wanted to integrate they had sort of a what are these called like this is a business system where you're managing orders and stock and stuff like that there's some name for that but inventory management system or yeah that like sort of thing yeah yeah okay they had like a some swedish system like that that they were using and they wanted to have a part of their website where you could order and it would go directly into the system and that system had a c++ api so i had to sort of learn how to interact with that api so that their customers could place orders online and that's sort of the first time i ever did c++ professionally because i had to glue something together so people could order coats and pants i think it was and yeah that's that's sort of how that journey started so i was a very vocational coder i guess i just sort of learned whatever i needed at the moment in order to complete some task at my job and at the same time i also developed an interest in open source software so i was using linux and a lot of my friends were really into that stuff so they they got me got me hooked on the open source community and i started realizing at some point i realized that wait a minute these problems i'm having with the software i can just fix it myself mm-hmm. that's crazy and i still remember like early on fixing issues in KDE and just being blown away that I could fix the problems. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the first patch you got accepted or the first commit because I think it's kind of always like a remarkable moment when you kind of see that, oh this actually no part of the th-. I don't know what the first one was. I remember the first one that it was a really big deal to me. It was the KDE browser conqueror which, you know, later became the foundation of Safari WebKit when Apple forked yeah. it. I worked on that 
just around the time that Apple was secretly working on a browser and somebody had added ad blocking to it. And I thought, wow, this is great. Ad blocking built into a browser. Don't need any extension or anything. But it annoyed me that you would put in a new ad filter and then you had to reload the page for the filter to take effect. So I wrote this, in retrospect, really horrendous piece of code that would go and sort of dynamically update the content without having to reload and just uh, filter out any ads that were matching the new filter. And that was so cool to me that like I could awesome. get that in and see that working. And that was also like the first time I really worked on a browser. And then I've been doing browsers, you know, for 15 years after that. And well, how did you wind up at Apple? Because you obviously worked at WebKit at Apple. And for those of you folks who may not be familiar, WebKit is essentially the browser rendering engine, which is the heart of Safari, which you might be using on your laptop. And obviously, you know, the browser that you use on iOS and maybe one of the most widely used browsing engines on the planet, maybe next to Chromium or close to Chromium. And so you wind up at WebKit at, Web uh, at Apple in Silicon Valley. How did that journey happen? Right. So I was sort of bouncing around between jobs in Sweden, this small town, Nice gigs, but there was a very serious ceiling to how much you could grow as a developer within those places, you know, because the problem space was limited and small teams doing small projects. So eventually, I guess I wanted to do something more challenging and more interesting. And since I was a big fan of KDE at the time, mm -hmm. I thought, well, maybe I can get a job doing KDE. And I couldn't really find something doing that. But the best thing I could find was working on Qt, which was the framework that KDE is built on. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I think uh, for those folks, they might be betraying our age here, right? Like back in the day, you know, you were either a Qt fan or a GNOME fan. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, and those are the two <laughs> things, right? Like maybe it's still the case. I'm not up to date with my desktop Linux wars these days. You know, I just use Wordos and Ubuntu. But uh, you really, you had to pick, right? Uh, between Qt and all the things which somehow had the word K in front of it, even if it didn't make, you know, pronunciation sense and all the stuff with GNOME, which is sometimes slower, but look better, which is kind of like the, the trade-off. By the way, there's this great book by Ken Kossienda, which I'm sure you've read called Creative Selection, where he talks about how they pick Conqueror as the code base to use for WebKit, which is basically they couldn't get the Mozilla code base to build, right? They were like, wait, this is whole horrendous thing, the XP common. Conqueror is just super small and easy. And they're like, this builds and it's almost an accident that it wound up becoming the core for it. But okay, so you had Apple. I only want to put Apple through this. Right. So I, had, I still have to get to Apple. So I got a job at Nokia working on Qt, which was underpinning the KDE stuff, which indeed there was the big war between GNOME and KDE. And I was in team KDE for whatever reason. I think back in those days, it was totally arbitrary. You just had to pick a side. And yeah. now Stick you were on that it. team. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is probably going to spark an internet flame war right here with that comment. Possibly. It was it was the Vim versus Emacs of, of Linux desktops, I guess. But yeah, so I, I went to work at Nokia and they had just purchased Qt from a small Norwegian company that was originally doing it. And Nokia had these big dreams of putting Qt on everything. So they had Symbian phones and they were also doing some Linux phone stuff. And they figured we're going to buy this framework, adapt it to mobile and build everything on top of that. And I guess that's the same time that I got hired. And when I started there, they sort of had just looked at my resume, seen that I had worked on a browser before, and somehow they just assigned me to work on the browser stuff at Nokia. And I got assigned to work on WebKit, which they had recently adopted. So that was sort of my first 
exposure to WebKit proper, because before that I had been working on KHTML, which was the original engine that was forked to become WebKit. And now I just suddenly got a job asked to work on WebKit. So it all kind of worked out. The code was familiar, but different. I could get up to speed pretty quickly. And eventually it became clear at Nokia that Nokia is not winning the mobile wars. Yeah. And they started implementing, they got a new CEO from Microsoft. Stephen Elop came and started ruling with an iron fist, let's say. And that created some discontent within our very Linux focused ranks. And I was one of many people who decided that, okay, well, I'm not sticking around for this Windows mobile conversion effort. And I got approached by Apple and just said, yeah, sure. That's and at that of... time, what was Apple like? Like, you know, you've, you've worked at smaller companies before building, you know, small things, websites, that kind of thing. This is like your first big professional work environment. How was that like? What was the culture like back then at Apple? So I kind of missed out on the initial culture shock, I think, because I was unable to get a visa for for a long time because I didn't have a university degree. So gotcha. because of that, I they figured out the solution that they're just going to put me in an EU country. So they put me in Ireland mm-hmm. and they just said, just sit here until we can qualify you for an L1 visa instead. So they just, <laughs> they just kind of got me an apartment in Ireland and asked me to wait around for a bit. And of course, I was working at this time working on WebKit and coordinating with with my team in the US, but they were all sitting in an office together every day. And I was just a satellite person who didn't know anybody on the team and everything. So it was it was a very strange onboarding experience. And by the time I actually got out to the US, I'd already been with the company for two years. Wow. Um, Wow. So I was a bit of an outsider always, I guess. So for those who are folks who are familiar, like an L1 visa is an intra-company transfer is usually done when somebody already worked in the company in a foreign country, and then you move them over as opposed to a H1B where you're essentially joining somebody for the first time in the United States. And I think we'll tie this back to what we start off with, which is basically you being self-start and, you know, drop, being a dropper, you know, dropping out of high school. I do think a lot of developers, you know, face imposter syndrome. And I think this is something you've talked about here. You're at Apple you know, one of the greatest technology companies of maybe all time. I'm sure you've grown up idolizing Steve Jobs and and all these characters. A lot of folks around you probably have, you know, great credentials. How was to fit in that environment, you know, and you being like, hey, I taught myself write code with, you know, all these small shops in Sweden and here I am. Yeah, it was intimidating for sure. And I probably acted out a little bit. In in what way? Like I tried to compensate when I would feel insecure about everybody else having university degrees, me having nothing, I would sort of, I don't know, like act out by like a teenager would sort of by being, I don't know, edgy, outrageous, like trying to impress people with silly antics. It it was a very strange time for me. And I did, I think I didn't appreciate that until much later because at the time I didn't understand what was happening to me. I didn't understand why I felt so inferior or, or insecure about these things, but I still appreciated where I was. And I tried to make as much as I could of the opportunity to learn from people. But in retrospect, I, I definitely, I definitely was not handling it in a mature way. Like I remember. And what just, was that like? It was like sending a nasty email to someone? More like, like finding other people who were feeling maybe similarly and then making little groups with them and then talking shit about all the other people, <laughs> things like that. Like this childish behavior, basically. Very Um, mean girls. 
Yeah, yeah, right. Mean girls sort of thing. And it, it was not a healthy behavior for sure, but it was my coping mechanism for, yeah. for this insecurity that I had at the time. Which, I mean, I'm curious yeah. at what point after, there's a lot of, obvious, lot of stuff you want to get into, which happened to you at Apple and later, but at what point, you know, you obviously seem very wise and calm and self-aware and introspective about your time at Apple and, you know, even just you saying like you act out, like when did you kind of reach that? When did you go like, okay, wait, that was maybe not the best way for me to handle or maybe that was what I was experiencing and this is how I reacted. I mean, I don't know about you, but I still don't have the realization for all my... <laughs> the audience used to storm out of meetings at Microsoft in our early 20s. Like she was well known for, well, F this and I, she would I, literally... I think, out, I think I did that twice. Yeah. I think you're exaggerating. Yeah, it's but quite dramatic. It was right? well deserved. I still uh, made an impression on him. Yeah, it sounds true. like... <laughs> true. So, you know, I, I you know, when we're talking to you about coming on the show, you've been quite open about your struggle with narcotics and substances and your recovery since then. And, you know, honestly, on our show, we kind of usually kind of stay with nerdy, fun stuff. And I was asking you, hey, you know, this is something you want to talk about. And you've been very open, you know, in, in all of YouTube videos and talking about this. So maybe I want to start at the beginning, which is how did you start experiencing substances alcohol what is your earliest memory of using or drinking or consuming anything oh my earliest memory i think that was it actually has a, a very technical slant so i got together with a bunch of friends i think i was 14 and one of my friends had his his, his parents had gone away for the weekend so he had the apartment all to himself and then he invited some of us and said like hey let's have a party and let's get alcohol and that was the pitch and you know being a teenager curious looking to be as cool as possible in front of my friends i said yeah sure and somehow i volunteered to get the alcohol despite mm -hmm. not knowing anybody who could do that not knowing where to acquire any alcohol but what i figured out eventually was that hey i can just go on icq this yeah. instant messenger oh, yeah. at the time. You know, I said, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they had a search feature where you could like search by city, by age, things like that. So I just went on ICQ on my computer, searched for people who were of drinking age where I lived, and just started asking the people who were online, like, hey, could you buy me alcohol? <laughs> I think so. Imagine in 2022, you could open up a social media app and search for people by age and then message them, right? Like this is truly, you know, a different era of communication messaging apps. How old oh, yeah. are you? How old are you at this 14 time? or so. Yeah, I was 14, yeah. And amazingly, the very first person that I asked said, yeah, sure. He just, yeah. And what, what, what was in it for them? <laughs> I, I would, you know, pad the, with a little extra yeah, money on yeah. top. Okay, yeah, got yeah. it. So, like, he could keep the keep the change. So we got that hooked up. Like this guy showed up an hour later with a bunch of beer in the trunk of his car and I paid him and, and that was that. And I thought, wow, technology is amazing, which it was, of course, in retrospect, like the fact that that worked out so easily, it, it would probably be much harder to do today, in fact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that that was how we got started. And then, of course, you know, we drank all the alcohol, got very loud and silly eventually had the police called on us because we wouldn't shut up late at night so my friend's father who was normally a very quiet man his neighbors were very suspicious like why are all these young people yelling in in your yeah. apartment so the cops came and, and told us to knock it off and i remember lying there trying not to laugh 
while my friend was talking to the police, just thinking, this is awesome. And that was the first time I got drunk. And it was so impressive to me that I just wanted to do it again as soon as possible. Even when I was throwing up my insides the the next day, I still thought, when can I do that again? And then that really stuck with me for like 20 years. No, on and off, sometimes less, sometimes more, but it it didn't wear off for me that glow, that the amazement of like, how awesome is alcohol? And you asked about earlier about like, how, when did I start to, to be able to reflect like this? Or when did things turn for me at Apple? Like, when did I start to see, uh, start to be able to look at my own behavior and recognize these things? I think Honestly, that didn't happen while I was there. I think it happened only afterwards. Once I started looking at this alcohol and drug thing, mm-hmm. when I ended up in recovery communities. So I got into a state rehab clinic because right. in Sweden, in Sweden, there's a very, there's, there's like a pipeline in Sweden. So you end up in the hospital or with the police for, for some kind of drug related thing, mm-hmm. then now you have an appointment with a doctor and after that you get an appointment with a behavioral counselor whatever blah 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 so that's how i got onto that path but we can we can talk about that separately yeah Um, you know i think one thing which is i'm kind of curious about is you mentioned the story which you know kind of sounds like youthful antics which a lot of us you know have probably have various versions of you know you're young you're kind of goofing around you're doing something which you're not supposed to and you know and i think one thing you talk about is that sort of escalating so mm-hmm. so what happened like when did that kind of go from you know drinking you know alcohol with some friends which i think a lot of teenagers you know probably wind up doing in some form or the other to something which is maybe a little bit more serious right so i think my story is very typical at least from from having talked to hundreds of other people like this in that it was like just a long series of tiny steps, of yeah. tiny escalations. There yeah. wasn't like that one big escalation, you know, where I suddenly I'm drinking a beer and I'm just on a whim deciding to do cocaine. That that never happened. It was more like, you know, I would meet up with my friends and then one of them had some cannabis with him or somebody. We were going to a festival or something and then somebody thought, hey, why don't we try one of these party drugs at the festival, like uh, ecstasy or something like that. And... I think it was more a consequence of being in that sort of community where if you surround yourself with other people who are very experimental and and like drug friendly or always drinking, then it's just inevitable that things sort of float into your world. And that's exactly what happened to me that through association with, with other people who were into this type of stuff, I just opportunities arose and I, I was already drunk. So I said, yeah, sure, I'll smoke that or sure, I'll, I'll smell that thing you have there. And I didn't, of course, I wasn't able to see any of that as a series of escalations until I was very, very far along the path. And that's really the, that's the, the sad thing about it is that you, you can't see the process while it's happening to you you would have to be extremely clear-headed, which you're not because you're doing drugs. You, you seem to have kind of these two parallel paths here. Right? There's one part of this story, you know, starting age 14, 15, where your self-taught coder, start contributing to open source, get into Apple. It's also like, you're like a fun time at Apple, which we should get into. And there's other part where you're kind of maybe escalating down this path. Were you ever aware that, this is a problem. Were you keeping a secret from your parents and friends? Like at what point were you like, hey, this is a thing? 
or where you always like, well, I can always stop at any point in time. I think one thing I often hear, you know, when I talk to people with some similar issues or who have recovered is they tell themselves, I can always stop. And I can right. always, in, what was, did you go through that? Definitely. I always imagined that I could stop if I had to. I just don't want to. And sometimes when it would get really bad, I would, I had this defense mechanism where I would find somebody I knew who was doing a little bit worse than me. And I would think to myself, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. And that sort of made me feel comfortable with what I was doing and allowed me to just keep going. I, I just, I always managed to find some way to, I guess, de-emphasize or, or to lessen what I was doing in my own eyes and, and just think like, well, it's not as bad as this or that. And I was definitely hiding it from my parents as much as I could, but not so much from my friends because they were doing the same thing. Many, many of them, at least I, I had coworkers who were unaware of it, but even then I usually couldn't keep my mouth shut and I would sort of, it, it feeds back into the thing I was talking about earlier about feeling insecure around all these smart, educated people. And like, how can I impress them? Well, I can tell them that I did drugs all night because then they'll think I'm wild and crazy and cool. That was sort of, that broke down that barrier. So I, everybody just wound up learning about what I was doing that way, or, or many people did because I just couldn't shut up about it because I, I thought it, it would sound cool or something. And did it impact your work at all? Your productivity at Apple at this point? Oh, of course. Of course yeah. it did. Um, okay. <laughs> but I, I would never have admitted to it at the time. But obviously, one of the big things I've learned since recovering is that you're just amazingly more productive without these things in right. your life. And I think I held on as well as I could for somebody in my position. And there were definitely times where I could go for months without touching anything. I would sort of get into my head that, oh, now I'm going to live healthy, be clean right. for whatever reason. But right. it was always like, I would find some temporary motivation that got me real hyped. Mm -hmm. Like maybe I wanted to, I don't know, lose a bunch of weight or I wanted to achieve like some running speed on a treadmill or I would have like these random goals suddenly catch my interest. And then in the pursuit of that, I would sort of accidentally also stop doing drugs for a while. But the moment I ran out of interest in, in those random goals, I would just get back to drinking, get back to doing drugs. It was, it was a habit. It was sort of my holding pattern, if you will, mm -hmm. like my baseline that I would always fall back to. You spoke about this at one time, your family basically, you know, do you stage an intervention? They basically get you checked into, you know, what kind of like a rehab facility in Sweden. So how did that happen? What made your family go, well, this is it. And we're going to act right now. Well, I guess the, um, the thing that they told me was that I was hurting them. My behavior was not limited to myself. Like I wasn't only hurting myself, I was hurting other people. And that had never occurred to me. Mm -hmm. Like just addiction is, a, is an extremely selfish state. It's a very selfish disease. It's you and the drugs and everybody else is a secondary concern at best. So it never even occurred to me that I might be hurting somebody else. And when, when they told me that I was, I was making their life difficult, making it worse and hard and unpleasant. I don't know, that was some sort of a tipping point for me because then I couldn't, I couldn't make this excuse anymore that I was only hurting myself. Right. And so I was told that at the very least, I need to speak to a doctor. 
So that's that's and, sort and of this the, was in yeah. Sweden. This is not in Cupertino. Right. This was in okay. Sweden. Yeah. So okay. you know the, the career path was I moved to Norway to work at Nokia on Qt. Then I moved to America or Ireland to get a visa. America to work at Apple for a bit, and then we moved back to Sweden while still working at Apple for a while in in 2015. And it wasn't until 2018 that yeah. that I had this intervention put on, put onto me. And yeah, it was in Sweden. So I ended up in this state rehab program, basically. I mean, at that point, going through the intervention, being on the other side of it, did you feel like, yeah, this is really busted. I need to like fix this and clean up. Or were you like resentful and being like, these people have no idea. Like I can always quit when I want to. Like, what was your thought process then? I think uh, there was probably some resentment for sure. Mm -hmm. But I remember that it was easier than I had expected to switch gears because the idea that I was hurting other people, that really, it was really impactful to me because I had totally internalized that this is a, like, it's only damaging me, right? Me. Yeah. I was totally believing that. And just hearing one person say, no, no, you're hurting me too. And at the same time, I'd probably been told that before and, and just shrugged it off. So I don't know what it was at this particular time. In, in, in addiction therapy, they often talk about these moments of weakness that you have every so often when you're living with addiction. And those are the, the chances that you get to, for somebody to kind of knock you out of it, knock you off your stride and, and reach you. So I think it just coincided with me feeling bad about what I was doing. Maybe I was, you know, on a come down or something and not feeling great in general, kind of hung over. And then people start telling me these things and I'm maximally susceptible at that time. And I don't know, whatever it was, it worked. And I listened and that started a, a very long process of actually doing something about it, which, you know, was facilitated by government rehab or not government, I guess, state rehab, but I'm really grateful that it happened and I'm like now I'm on way better terms with all of my family than than I had been for the last 15 years which has been a, a good development for sure and yeah I'm, I'm happy to go into detail it's just that there are so many different branches yeah. from here so I think one interesting bit is I was listening to some of your videos on this and it is such such a moving story and honestly just thank you so much for being so open with this which is and if I if I if I'm getting this right when you go become part of the rehab program, it becomes part of your permanent record in Sweden of some sort, right? People can find you. And so you basically had a choice, one of many choices where, you know, am I okay with this being public? Is that right? Right. Yes. I forgot about that. That's true. So when I was sitting there at the hospital waiting to speak to uh, whoever it was I was going to speak to, some nurse who was going to do an, an early assessment, I had to fill out a form that said I consent to like this drug problem becoming part of my permanent medical record in the Swedish healthcare system. And that was an opt-in choice. I, I could say no. Mm -hmm. And the nurse who gave me the paper actually mentioned that like you don't have to put this on your record if you want. Like you can mm -hmm. you can skip it and some people choose to do that. It's up to you. And I remember sitting there in this very bright room just thinking what do I do right do I try to weasel out of this for the 500th time 
like this is as far as I've been on the on the like recovery path at that point. Like I'd never been to the hospital with these concerns before, so I didn't know what would what would happen next. Mm-hmm. But I knew what would happen if I would just fall back to baseline and start lying and, and try to sneak out of it again. And that was, it was an interesting choice. But I somehow I just decided, ah, whatever. I'll I'll just I'll just make it part of my record and admit to this and see what happens. And that was a leap of faith, I guess. You know, when I was I, I was wondering, is at that moment you deciding to make this public? Is that is there a through line from that to now you building something wide out in the open, way more public than most people are, and also being so transparent and open about this whole story? You know, do you think that decision, that moment in time, directly led to everything since then? Yes, actually. Now that you say it, I think so. I think that was the that was the pivotal moment that, that I just made a different choice and my life just took a different path from from that moment and everything i've done since then has been a consequence of just choosing to admit my flaws i guess yeah mm-hmm. so you go to rehab you finish the program you come out of it what happens there like where's the how do i connect the dots from there to serenity and what you're building yeah, you get a cabin if i if i remember like you know which feels like <laughs> the most scandinavian thing to do it's like get a cabin in the middle of nowhere like a bond villain <laughs> and you know you talk to your brother about video games like, but talk to us about the cabin right so so rehab was very intense it was every day right as i recall it was 4 hours 5 hours a day starting at 8 in the morning so that was a heavy routine that my whole life became about rehab for for 3 months and then one day they said you're finished yeah like thank you for coming good luck and i had to figure out what was i going to do because now i had this routine of getting up in the morning working so hard on all these different exercises and and like group therapy stuff and i was i guess i had built a kind of discipline around it and then they took away the task so i just started working on other stuff like i would give myself assignments instead like okay well i'm just going to work on programming stuff i guess cuz that's what i enjoy and i didn't know exactly what to do at first so i would just start writing these random pieces of code of stuff i thought was fun and my my whole brain my whole ego everything was in a very confused state at this time because you know i'd been to group therapy every day and and talked in detail about all the ways i would act out all the things i would put in my body all of the insecurities and all the ways i had wronged people and all of this stuff so i was in a very like in a very good spiritual state and so i was able to try out a bunch of things just to find out if i would like them so I started writing different types of software and what I ended up with was a small set of things that I would spend more time on than than everything else and like okay I guess these are the things I'm interested in so I had like three different pieces of software I would switch between and then at some point I had the clever idea well what if I just combine them and then I have 5% of an operating system and I just need the other 95%. Uh, I mean I mean why why decide to go full stack? That seems yeah. outrageous <laughs> for anybody, right? Like clearly you're a gifted programmer, you've like, you know, self-taught, you've gotten to like you worked at Apple, but why decide to do the whole thing and <laughs> and what the hell was wrong with Linux at that time? But- Yeah, I mean, it's for people who are technical. Like building an operating system is like trying to build an entire skyscraper by yourself. It's something, you know, with thousands of people do. And here you are in a cabin being like, well, 
I'm kind of 30 percent there. I'm just going to do this by myself. Yeah, right. And the cabin. Yeah, right. I forgot about the cabin. So I, I had been staying with a relative until this point while going to rehab. And it was very helpful to have somebody, somebody there every morning to remind me to go and remind me why I was doing it. But when I got out, I felt like I wanted to, I don't know, I wanted to have my own space for a bit, you know, so I, I ended up renting a cabin. And that's when I started getting into programming seriously. And why, why does one decide to go full stack? So oh, actually, I have that, a question on the getting into program because I think in one of your interviews, you spoke about how this might have been one of your therapists of your rehab said, maybe you're replacing one unhealthy obsession with a healthy obsession. And maybe that's a good thing. Right. Yes, that's definitely, that's what my therapist said. He had this way of saying it that, that would rhyme better in Swedish. But basically his idea was that it's better that you get fat than that you keep doing drugs. Because it was, I was always in the context of people saying that they just go home and eat. So everybody would go home and uh, eat candy or eat cinnamon rolls or whatever. And in that same discussion, I would say like, well, I just go home and I write code for eight hours. And he said, good, do that. That's fine. I don't care. Like, just don't do drugs. <laughs> and that, but that really stuck with me. Like this idea that maybe my, my tendency to obsess about things isn't necessarily like something that has to be eradicated. It's just that it has to be directed towards something healthy, yeah. something productive. And that, that helped me a lot with accepting myself because I've always been obsessive. It's just that when you have obsession and you, you point it at the wrong thing, it becomes very destructive. So I think that that was helpful. And to your question about why build a full stack, which is what I ended up doing, that really comes from Apple. So when I worked at Apple, I got so used to the way Apple does software, which mm -hmm. is they kind of control everything, right? And they also control the hardware, which is still an area that I didn't delve into. But um, and it's true even today with the hardware, with the chip, with everything, like they've gone so deeply full stack now. Yeah, exactly. And I was so sold on that approach to software development that it's easier to control the whole stack because then if you need to change something, the, the expert on that thing is like two doors down or at worst, like in the next building or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And having that like locality of, of all the responsible developers for everything, I, I was really attracted to that. And coming out, leaving Apple, I sort of, initially I just kept using Mac OS and iOS, but then I switched back to Linux just to see where it was at and sort of catch up. And I remember being kind of, I guess, disappointed that <laughs> with the way it was developed, because I was so used to like all the source code is in one place, all the experts yeah, are yeah. together and they would, they coordinate and work together. And in Linux, it's just not like that. You know, you have thousands of people or tens of thousands of people in totally disjoint teams using different programming languages. They don't have shared goals or, I mean, they have like very high level shared goals, but mm -hmm. that coordination was totally missing in the, in the Linux world. And I, I thought, well, this isn't the way I like to work and there isn't really anything which is the way I would like to work. So I guess I can just try to make it. So I thought, well, if somebody's going to have to make this, might as well be me. Like I'm decently competent at this point, I guess. And I was in a, as I mentioned, I was in a very like a clear slate spiritual state. So I didn't, yeah. I didn't think of myself as having like these 
limitations necessarily for what I could do. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So it was just another thing that I thought I could try. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, did you have like an overarching plan? You know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to build these and these components and maybe like hire some people. Like, was there ever a plan to like do something? There was like a North Star goal around this. No, not at all. It really grew organically from that initial problem I had where there were so many hours in the day and I didn't know what to do. So I just thought, well, I can sit here and write code for four hours straight and then I have to eat. That's great. Now I just have to do something with the remaining eight hours and it just expanded to fill the time. You know, when I went back and looking at a bunch of your videos about building and there are two things that really resonated with me. One is, I think you talk about how the product tens of thousands of people who try and build an operating system, right? You know, you read Andrew Tannenbaum, you look at Minix, you read the stories, you're like, well, I'm going to build that. And GitHub is littered with the dead bodies of, you know, <laughs> 10,000, you know, aspiring operating systems. And you spoke about, you know, most people try building a bootloader, which is kind of the thing which goes from hardware to actually getting the first piece of code running, or a kernel, which, you know, for non-technical, kind of the most kind of core part of operating system. But you took a slightly different approach which I think might be directly have led to this actually surviving and you not giving up. Could you talk about that? Because I think there's something about the part at which you start a mammoth, intimidating project being critical. Right. Yeah. So the way I approached it was that I just started with the fun stuff. Uh, I just started (laughs) with whatever I'm interested in today. That's just the part I'll work on. And then I will sort of shim everything else or just put like some crappy placeholder underneath. Because I want to work on UI right now. I, uh, so I, I figured that was the only reasonable way to attack something like this. As Well, I was originally just a single person, right? Nowadays, there's hundreds of people who have worked on the project. But when it was just me, my thinking was, if I, if I were to do this, like, starting at the bottom, building up, which is perhaps the, I don't know, like the conventionally wise way of doing it, like building a strong foundation and then layering on top of that. But that just didn't seem fun to me. Mm -hmm. So because I I had no financial motivation with the project, I thought, well, who's telling me that I can't just do the fun stuff first? And, uh, and, And so what's the fun stuff that you're talking about? That really varies. And I mean, I'm... At the end of the day, I'm a huge programming nerd, right? So fun stuff for me is like writing a PNG image decoder or something. Or maybe some stuff I wanted to do early was like design window borders. Mm-hmm. So I was playing around with that. Well, I didn't have any window manager. I didn't have any display device drivers or anything like that. But I just wanted to draw like the little maximize and minimize buttons and make them react when you click. So I just started with that. And somehow, I think something that helped me tremendously was taking a very, very long-term perspective. So I just told myself, well, given the scale of what I'm attempting here, this is going to take at least 10 years, at least, <laughs> probably more. Yeah. So might as well dig in and get comfortable with that idea that I'm not going to see like this amazing milestones and amazing progress for a while. I had a theory, which is, you know, if I correct, the one of the, two of the first things that you built where one is, you know, an ELIF parcel, which is essentially the binary file format for, you know, Linux executables. And then there's a file system manager and then a windowing system. And one of my theories was that because you picked those, you could actually run stuff and get visual output and feedback back very, very quickly, as opposed to kind of toiling away in the basement without seeing any sort of visible result. And I think there's something 
there about a lot of other crafts being going to the gym or trying out something new, where when sometimes when people try and learn a musical instrument, you know, you being able to kind of play your favorite song, maybe a very terrible version of it, and getting that feedback loop very quickly is that often led, leads people to keep at it as opposed to, well, I wanted to spend a year learning theory before I can do the thing that I want to. Mm-hmm. Do you think that was part of the appeal or what maybe accidentally worked out for you? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And to the thing you were saying about like how most people try to build an operating system, they start with a bootloader. Like they start at Mm -hmm. the lowest level, the machine boots in this state. Okay, now you have to set up all of these things to get to the next part and the next part. And there's this sort of this conventional order that you're you're supposed to do things in. And I just, like you say, there's tens of thousands of dead operating systems in the graveyard of GitHub. And I think the most common mistake that everybody makes is that they follow that path where you don't get a lot of visual feedback early on because you're just like, you're trying to get something to boot on a dark screen. Maybe you have a serial cable if you're savvy, but that's just so demotivating. And especially when you're not used to that sort of programming environment in the first place. So I guess you can, you can tweak the odds for yourself, make it more likely that you'll persist by just getting to a place sooner where you get visual feedback. And it's more exciting to work on something that looks good. I always try to tell people that, that investing some time in making your your prototype look good is not stupid. Like it, it makes it that much more fun to work on the prototype. And you sometimes see like development screenshots of like, here's how this game was made. And then you see like some early version of a game where it has like uh, programmer art, right? Where the programmer drew some some graphics and it looks crappy. And I don't work well in that environment. Like if something looks bad, I don't want to work on it. That's so, the ex-Apple engineer you. Like Apple has left your yeah. mark on you, Andrew. It's right there. <laughs> very much, very much. Um, you know, somebody maybe who's not a coder may listen to this and they may ask like, why bother? Right. There's a bunch. I mean, even after 10 years, even at this pace, unless something magical happens, right, you will never be able to you know, replicate the functionality of OS X or Windows or blah, blah, blah. You know, this is an act of love, an act of craft. And if somebody's going to watch this and being like, why pick something so monumental, so hard, as opposed to something easier or more commercially applicable or something a lot of people could use? So why something by, by definition? is almost going to be impossible to perfect in a way. Well, I guess part of it is just love for the art of programming. Like, it's just something that I really love doing. And there isn't anybody doing it in this way. So there wasn't really an effort I could join. Like, people sometimes ask me, hey, why don't you just work on Linux instead? But Linux is not really what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to build something that is just a complete self-contained ecosystem, if that makes sense. And and recently also with building our own language for that ecosystem. But I think for love, love is the main reason that I want to do it. And for, for mental health, to give myself something to do, something positive to just sink all of my obsessive energy into. But something that, that really is amazing that happened from this is that while I was working on this for my personal reasons, because I was doing it publicly, hundreds of other people found it and they were like, hey, I also like working on this. Mind if I join? And I just said, go ahead. Let's do it together. Like, the more the merrier. And I definitely, like, whatever my original goals and visions were for this, they now have to share 
the table with hundreds of, of other people's visions and, and goals. And that has been a very interesting process in itself that has helped me tremendously in my, in my recovery, just having to learn to share and learning that while a single person can initiate something great, you need a team to continue. And how many, how many hours a day today do you spend, you know, working on serenity as such, like on average? Well, on average right now, probably eight or 10. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. But I want to get to the community because I think it's beautiful and they've been so positive. But maybe, you know what, we've been talking about serenity for so long. Maybe you should get a look at it. Like, can you maybe, let's take a tour, show us around serenity. Oh, sure. Yeah. For the folks who are going to be listening on audio, you're missing out, but this is on YouTube and, you know, this <laughs> is quite awesome. So right. what are we looking at here? So this is the desktop. And as you can see, it's very reminiscent of late 90s Windows yeah. operating system. Yeah. Actually, can I ask you about this? Sure. Because this really struck me. I know you're a fan of Windows 2000. And, mm -hmm. and uh, we are too. And we are too, because and this may be something else that sounds similar to us, but I think we both had this sort of formative time, or at least we did, teen years, parents PC, our PC, and, you know, and it felt like, you know, and Windows 2000 came after, you know, Windows 98 and ME, which were kind of like not as professionally built. Windows 2000, for folks who may remember, was the first NT-based mm -hmm. operating system meant for regular people to use. Um, so this has like major nostalgia vibes for me and I'm sure a lot of other people. But so what, what does it mean to you? Why Windows 2000? Why this particular look? And I think partly for the same reason you just described, like that's was my part of my formative years as a teenager using Windows 2000, being amazed about it. And I always felt, even to this day, that it was just the most competent execution of user interface mm -hmm. that has happened. And that's not to say that there haven't been like discoveries in the world of UI since. A lot of interesting things have happened, of course, but there's just something about that extremely efficient user interface that takes the user seriously and I guess treats treats you like an adult and it doesn't try to s spend screen space on looking fancy, looking nice. It's just everything is directed and purposeful. And it, it sort of, I guess it represents to me the last piece of software that happened before the big consumer boom on the internet also, when this was sort of, it was still very much an office device at this point. And then Windows XP came out and home computers became more like home oriented and entertainment focused. So, yeah. You know, when I saw you talk about Windows 2000, I was, for somebody like me, and I'm sure a lot of people watching this, you look at the UI, you should probably bring it up. And, you know, you get this blast of nostalgia, nostalgia. from your teenage years. And, you know, for me, this thing you know, takes me back to my childhood hang out with the parents. And, you know, recently, you know, actually, you know, my mom actually passed away. And I was actually going back and looking at some of the things I used to do when I was back at home and hang out with her and my dad. Was some of this motivated by nostalgia for you for, you know, maybe, you know, before kind of computing got complex, our lives got complex, and this just seemed fun to play with? And uh, Well, I guess initially, sure. There's definitely that burst of nostalgia that I felt while building the UI and making it look like Windows 2000 and so on. But I find at least personally that nostalgia has half-life and mm -hmm. it kind of diminishes Same. over time. I just, I can't sustain that feeling of excitement about nostalgia. So there is something deeper here than just nostalgia yeah. for me, at least, because I've, I've just been working on it for years at this point. And yeah. 
I still feel like, wait a minute, this looks better than anything else I have available. That is true. Uh, okay, give us a tour. What are we looking at? Right. So now we are looking at the web browser in Serenity, which is called Browser. Everything in Serenity has the most obvious possible names. So there's the browser, there's help, there's text editor and so on. No, no fancy product names. And yeah, this is displaying Google. So it's a decently competent web browser engine written from scratch. So it doesn't have any dependencies on WebKit or Firefox or anything like that. Here is the <laughs> website of this show, uh, which I actually just last night went and fixed a, a bunch of issues so that it would look decently good once I was on the show. I saw the video that was so thankful, so grateful for that, you know, putting up with some of the bad HTML and CSS and design choices, but there's a fantastic video where Andreas actually live fixes the browser engine, you know, really to make cool. the site work, which was both inspiring and also come out embarrassing for me to see basically, like, oh my, oh my gosh, we're inflicting a lot yeah, of bad we, design. We should have, yeah, but, we should have fixed it, but thank you for thank doing you it. so much. And oh, no, no, really you shouldn't. Cool. I can't believe I'm seeing our website inside this browser, inside Serenity, and it's all built from scratch. It's, yeah. it's just pretty incredible. And for folks, again, you know, programmers will be super obvious, but folks are not technical. There are so many things going on here, right? There's an operating system running on top of an emulator, QMU, I believe, which is, looks like a physical, I mean, it emulates what is physically hardware. You know, there is a graphic system which draws the buttons and the windows. There is a browser where you're doing both the rendering of HTML, but also you need your own JavaScript engine to, you know, make a JavaScript work. So these are all things which have full organizations and teams, you know, from multiple companies. And mm -hmm. here you are, you know, writing code on YouTube and make it all work. Yeah. So obviously we also have bigger teams at this point, like a bunch of volunteers who also choose to help out. I, I don't think I would have gotten this far this fast. That's for sure. But one thing that I, I always try to show people is that you can get this far. It just takes time and effort. And I was fortunate enough to whatever it is I did that attracted other people. I got my sort of initial direction was amplified by other people adding their energy to it. But but all of this is very much doable by by people. And yeah, the there's a lot of interesting stuff underneath what you're what you're seeing here, as you were saying. Like there's the graphic stack and there's also stuff like encryption, which we've built ourselves, HTTPS. You, right? uh, by the way, let's note out let's note out for a little bit, right? Like so when you're looking at this, what were some of the harder technical challenges that you want to present. For example, I, do, I think the HTTPS TLS stack is new. I don't think that it existed even sometime recently. What was like, what are some things which are real hard roadblocks to overcome as you're building this? So there haven't been any like extreme roadblocks in the sense that we were not able to eventually pass them, but a lot of things have been hard to do, of course. So TLS was a big one that we were blocked on for a long time because I guess it was, it's just intimidating, you know, we have to implement all of these different encryption algorithms and yeah. certificate handling and revocation and blah, blah, blah. Right. All of that stuff. And, but eventually somebody just said, well, if none of you guys are going to do it, I guess I will. And somebody got the ball rolling. And once the ball was rolling, then 10 other people jumped in and, and like added one little thing here oh, and there. Cool. And that has been sort of how we build most stuff. And encryption was actually one of the first big things that I didn't initiate. So many of the things in the project and the project itself, I initiated, but encryption came from somebody else. And that that's generally our workflow is that somebody just takes it upon themselves to get the ball rolling. Mm -hmm. And once it is, we just know 
instinctively what to do. And show us around stuff here. This is a 3D model viewer. That's right. This is a 3D model viewer. So showing a classic teapot model for anybody who's done 3D graphics, they're familiar with the teapot. Yeah. And the 3D model viewer, this is a software, complete software implementation of OpenGL. Wow. Which we've done as well because somebody just started building it one day. I think the original motivation was we wanted to play Half-Life, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) And to play Half-Life, we needed OpenGL. And then, you know, much, much time and effort later, we have have a GL implementation. It's still not accelerated by by GPU, so there's a lot of work to be done in that area, but it's still capable. We also have a a photo editor, which is... I, I tried to initially build something that would remind you of MS Paint, yeah. So it has like the classic spray tools and things like that, yeah. but it also has layers and sort of a little bit more of modern advanced workflow. Wow. And then, yeah, and I had no yeah. idea how to build an image editor when I started, by the way. So that's very often the case with these applications. I just sort of approach it from first principles. I just think, well, what is an image editor? It has images. Okay. This and is so cool. they have layers. Okay. So let's make something called image and something called layer. And this then it kind major. of. So cool. Our producer, who's not very technical, is texting us saying, This is bonkers. Just looking at, you know, all of this. There's so much nostalgia. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's really cool what you've been able to do. And you and the community of people. Yeah. Would we? I was going to say, but you also have a bunch of games in here. Yeah. That's right. Oh, yeah. And oh, and here's one of our inventions. In we we do try to sort of stay within the UI language of the late '90s, early 2000s. But one thing that I really like in macOS is that you can distinguish when a window has modifications that you you would lose if you close it. So we came up with this a dot 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 language here under the X, which I'm really fond of. It just tells you that this thing is going to come up if you try to close. It's but, like a little like unsaved changes thing, but. You know, this, I think about a year ago, you made a fairly large design direction shift to the project where, I might be getting this wrong, You this used to be, you know, early 90s Windows look and feel with early 90s Unix kind of command line experience. And somewhere mm-hmm. in the last couple of years, you kind of flipped it around. And could you explain, is that right? Like what would have happened? Oh, no. So we that's still the case. We still have the Unix command line. So I didn't even show that yet. But yes, this is a, a Unix-like operating system. So it may look and feel like Windows, but it has a, a traditional like Linux BSD type feeling. We have the but kernel. I tried has to run, run Vim on this last night and I couldn't. And I was like trying to figure out like what, how to kind of get my text editor oh. mojo going. <laughs> Right. So we don't actually have a built-in command line text editor. We've put all the effort into our graphical text editor, but you can build Vim and install it if you want to. We have ports of, I think, 200 pieces of software or something like that has been ported to work on Serenity. But if you ever wanted to work on a command line text editor, that would be a place to start. You're calling me out with my coding (laughs) skills. You know, I'm a VC these days, so trust me, you you shouldn't trust my coding skills at all. But gosh, this is... You did end up at some point, working with Dave Cutler. Yeah. By the way, one of these other reasons I love NT in Windows 2000 is we used to idolize Dave Cutler. Folks are not familiar. Dave Cutler is kind of like one of the most famous people in the history of programming and development and the father of modern operating system, built uh, large parts of DEC and then most famously see Windows NT. And fun little sort of aside and story, which is when we joined Microsoft, Dave, you know, was kind of already in his late 50s, early 60s. So it's kind of slowing down but it was kind of working on what eventually become Windows Azure. And he was working on the kernel and the hypervisor part of things. And for folks who are not familiar, Dave is a scary personality. If you read the book Showstopper, which is about the government, there's all these amazing stories about Dave 
basically taking people's heads up. And and I found a way to get a job at the Steam, which became Windows Azure, just so I could work with Dave Cutler. And then I would spend weeks kind of hanging outside his door. And he would be wondering, who's this random pesky kid who just hanging outside? And one day, and this is probably one of the most terrifying experiences I've ever done in my corporate life, we could see every single check-in that any developer made to that team. And Dave was by far the most productive developer I'd ever seen. He would check in like every single day, including Christmas Day. And one day I noticed he had made like a small bug, you know, in one of his check-ins. And I went up and talked to him and said, hey, I found this issue. And you have no idea how terrifying that was. It's basically going up to Michael Jordan being like, hey, your jump shot is bad. And he looked at me, he grunted, and he was like, thank you. And then somehow that caused me to, him to warm up to me. And I'll never forget, you know, one of the best gifts I think I ever got in Arthi is a autographed version of Showstopper, mm-hmm. uh, which he signed. And so Dave is just a legend. So, sorry, kind of, sort of a random story, but Dave is a legend. No, I, I definitely like Dave as well. I, I don't know him personally, but I watched, there's this great double YouTube video of him, like sort of giving his oral history to some yeah. computer museum people. And it's just fascinating to hear about his journey from from vms all the way up to windows 2000 so definitely a fan as well oh my god awesome. uh, i just want to say Andy, what you're showing us on the screen it blows my mind i keep coming back to that but the fact that you and a small team of developers have built it that this is running just it's just remarkable what, what else can we look at here like, wait show- we didn't we didn't say games yeah let's uh, let's play something <laughs> games right so by the way this is our font editor we have drawn all of the fonts ourselves of course try not to leave anything out and we have a bunch of people who only work on fonts it's it's pretty wild at this point some people found it and they just fell in love with drawing glyphs and they want to cover every language so shout outs to them for working on that but yeah we have a bunch of games like the classics you would expect in whoa uh, look at that so (laughs) cool in an era-appropriate system and of course everybody's favorite uh, minesweeper (laughs) very cool but we also try to cater to recent trends. So somebody implemented Wordle. And usually we we are pretty open to like adding random things to the system as long as they are compelling in some way. Like as long as something is fun, we can add it. So we do have like a pretty random little collection of software. And we also have a chess game because somebody started to build a chess engine. Of course, it's it's pretty stupid, to be honest with you. Like I can I can beat it easily, which is a pretty good measurement of it being stupid. And yeah, there, there's just so much software in here that it's hard to even pick something to demonstrate. So a while ago, somebody started working on PDF support because, well, you know, PDF is a thing on the web and apparently it crashes when you open that. You get to see our fancy crash viewer as well. And we actually have some pretty neat features in the crash reporter. Like you can open it in a debugger, save it to file, things like that. You know, one of the things I love about some of the videos is you also wind up porting stuff like Doom, Duke Nukem, if I remember, and kind of wind up. What are some of the fun memories from doing some of that? You also have like some fixes to Doom, if I remember, to make it work better with your double buffered interface. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. So I've been kind of going through all of the games that I loved as a kid that happen to also have Source available today in some way. Mm -hmm. And I try to make sure that they run on Serenity. And it's been a while now since I've done that, but it's been a lot of fun getting stuff like Doom, working at Diablo, which was something I just spent so much time on playing as a kid. And it's, it's always challenging to port software 
to the system because I'm so used to being in sort of this closed ecosystem where we control everything. And then suddenly you take a third party software. This is totally normal in Linux, of course. Like in the Linux world, you're always dealing with third party software. But mm -hmm. here you're in this closed, very comfortable environment. And then suddenly somebody says, hey, can you make this totally yeah. different thing work? And that's always like a little bit as a big contrast, but it's it's been fun. And I've, I've documented the process of getting various games to run on the system in some of my videos on YouTube. And those have been, you know, very well received. And I would make more videos, but I just ran out of games, to be honest. I want to talk about the videos a little bit, but this is amazing tour, Andreas. This is mind blowing and people should go check it out. Thank you so much for the tour. This is amazing. I want to talk about the videos a little bit. One of the things that really struck me about the videos is you start off with a blank kind of a text editor. You say, you know, MKDIR you know, project name and you just get going. And sometimes you don't know how to do it. You're, you know, you face some very basic errors and it's so public, right? Like I look at it and think like, wow, I would not put myself out there. I would, you know, uh, and I would, I think a lot of people would be more comfortable putting out their finished, polished product. So what is the motivation for putting out these videos? Which are amazing, but a lot of people may not be as open as you are. Right. I think that's something that really comes from my time in the recovery community and, and in rehab. It was always very much encouraged that you should just tell what you're thinking. Like, tell us how you really feel. Don't filter. And let's just, let's just process together. And when I started making the videos, I was still very much in that headspace. And I mean, I still am because I've kept it alive this way. And what I would do is I thought, well, I just sit down, start programming and just show my process, what it might look like. And it wasn't so clean originally, like it got cleaner over time as I got used to, to recording it. And in fact, this is one of the most common things I give people as advice nowadays is that try recording yourself sometime just so that you can, you can capture what your process is really like. You don't have to show it to anybody, but like, just look at it yourself. If you, if you can stand to watch yourself struggling for an hour, trying to narrate as you go. It's super enlightening and you can learn a lot about yourself that way. But yeah, that's, that's really where it comes from. Like this, mm -hmm. this open sharing culture of rehab and recovery. And there have been times when I made some video that just didn't go well. Like I started on something that was a really bad idea and it produced nothing. And I think I've like, I've deleted maybe three or four videos like that. That where I didn't like where it ended up going. I've also deleted a, another three or four where I got upset <laughs> because I didn't feel like mm. that's not, that's not something I need to share with people. You know, like I get frustrated and upset because I'm not seeing the result I want and I start complaining and I, I try to run a, a, you know, happy go lucky YouTube channel in the end. Exactly. I love it because I think it shows so much of the process, which you, one of the things we like to do on our show is really deep, deep dig into the process of how things are created. Because when you look at the finished project, you know, a piece of art or some piece of code, it's very hard to see how much tears, how many wrong turns, you know, that went into it. And if, when you look at your channel, you go from you, I think the first video is you doing change mod all the way to yeah. now. When I mean, look at you, you know, like having, you know, kind of my early childhood operating system in there. I want to talk a little bit about the community. And because there is a vibrant community around Serenity, you know, there's an active discord. Everyone of YouTube has lots of comments. And what do you think is motivating them? You know, some of it is tied to you, I believe. I definitely think so. You know, you're kind of the BDFL uh, of this community. Some of it's just, what do, you, what do you think is pulling them in? So every time I ask somebody that, I get a different answer. 
which I love because there's just so many different diverse energies contributing to the project. And some of the, the cool ones I've heard is, for example, somebody just wanted to learn C++ mm-hmm. and they thought, well, here's a project where they do nothing but C++. I guess that would be a great environment to learn. And other people, they really like the aesthetics like the aesthetic choices and the nostalgic vibe, and they get hooked in by that. I think probably more more people than anything else get hooked by the nostalgic vibes. And then I sort of, they end up staying because they fall in love with the project. But people, like something that surprised me a lot was that I always thought that people were working on it because they want to use it. But it turns out we also have people who just work on it because it's fun and they don't want to use it, but they love improving it. And... When I first heard that, I remember being a little bit like irritated, like, wait, why? Why don't you want to use it? But I've let go. And since they keep improving it, like, I'm not going to be upset. (laughs) Whatever their motivations are, that doesn't matter. It's one to use if you build it yourself in QMU. You know, I want to get to, you know, we covered so much today. You know, there's so much of the project which we haven't covered. Like, for example, Yacht, the programming language that I've been spending a lot of time on, you know, so many other things the community is working on. But Badass is all go from here for you in, in, in the, and, you know, for the community, where do you see serenity in a few years from now? Right. Well, that's hard to say. I just hope that it can continue to be sort of a therapeutic device for myself and that it can represent something positive for other people that they can perhaps come to at the end of their workday and relax by, by having fun with programming in a community that loves programming or they can work on something that they want to use one day or whatever their motivations are like, I just hope that it can continue to flourish and develop in that way. And for me personally, like I always try to make a distinction between my goals and everybody else's goals, because I don't want to, I don't want to impose any of my goals on anybody else. But my Mm -hmm. personal goal for the system is to just build something that I can use. So ultimately, I'd like to not have Linux or Windows or Mac OS, but just Serenity. There's still a long way to go because I like to make videos. So I need to build a video stack and then video editor and stuff like that. But I still have that silly way of thinking where I just, when I hear those things and I just think, well, how hard can it be, right? You just have to start somewhere like, okay, well, a video has tracks with video and audio, and then you define those and like, I don't know, they just get started. I can really picture a video which is like, you know, building video capture, streaming support <laughs> into, you know, building OBS into Serenity. Right. Maybe one last question, which is, you know, but there's this amazing story which you talk about how Serenity actually comes from Serenity Prayer and, you know, it's kind of like a reminder for kind of the journey you've been through. So people are watching this who may not have heard of you before, maybe hearing of you now. What can they do? And you obviously are working on this full time, which I think, you know, for the last year, year and a half or so, what can they do to get involved to support you on this task? You know, download it, play with it, support it on Patreon. What can we do? So I guess what I would say is the best way you can support the project is to try it out for yourself and see if it's something you would like to participate in. That means more to me than, than anything else. But of course, I do have to mention that I, I am doing this full time, which I'm able to do because I have this generous support of people who join my Patreon and GitHub sponsors. And I've been doing this full time for over a year now, thanks just completely thanks to donations from people who, who like the project. And I'm, I'm super grateful for that. But yeah, like just try it out. See, see what you like about it and see if something annoys you. I always tell people, Like, just see if something annoys you and maybe you'll want to fix that. 
Uh, and I've hooked hundreds <laughs> of people awesome. that way because there's always something annoying. Everybody can find some little thing and they come and they complain in that. And I just tell them, well, I bet you can fix that. Like, here's what you do. <laughs> I, I love it. I absolutely love it. Andreas, by the way, you know, you've been such black. But the next time we do this, we, you're going to run StreamYard, our software inside Serenity. I'm sure that's the goal. No, but seriously, this might be the, one of the favorite episodes we have ever done. Your story is just remarkable. As kind of an artist creating something, something magical as somebody's overcome some really dark places. It's inspiring. It's touching. You know, on the show, we talk about things that need to exist. I think Serenity, what you're doing needs to exist, need to be supported. And you've been so open and generous before on online and now on our show. So thank you so, so much for joining us. This was just so amazing. Of course. I'm so happy you had me on here. Thank you. All right. And thanks to everyone for listening. And like Andrea said, find a way to go check out Serenity. If it annoys you, even better, go contribute. But also, you know, go yeah, find support, him on, support him, support support him on GitHub, Patreon, um, everywhere else. But you know, it's truly remarkable. And with that, you know, this has been such an amazing show. Thank you so much for joining it, it, us. It was great because we got to like nerd out a little bit yep. and just like relive our childhood. Like, childhood, you know, adolescent, Microsoft years even. And just really fun. Yeah, totally. It, it is both emotionally touching and nerd fun. And, and and I just love that Andreas is like building in public, which, you know, it, it's kind of cool to see. It, yeah. like, there's just this like really good retro vibe of, you know, building out in public and like sharing your wisdom with everybody else and getting the community to get involved in building this just like you know for like kids in this generation were like just looking into this like oh cool i want to like join it and be a yeah. part of it you know and just find a platform there it, i think it's great it's so powerful look at his earliest videos where he has nothing and now looking at it now and it looks remarkable it shows you like how how with just kind of gradual consistent progress you can do it one break and at a time yeah with that thank you so much for joining us we'll be back soon with another episode of good time show but this has been a blast Thank you, everybody. See you. Thank you.